The following is part of WFMP's public affairs educational programming. The views expressed are those of the speakers and not the station. If you would like to share your views, you may email us at wfmp.louisville at gmail.com. Welcome, everyone, to Election Connection. I'm your host, Ruth Newman, and we're coming to you from the Hayburn Building in downtown Louisville over WFMP 106.5 FM, as well as live streaming at forwardradio.org. And today it is my honor to have with us Carla Wallace, local activist, organizer, leader, who has worked tirelessly over many, many years to advance civil and human rights here in Kentucky. She's co-founder of the Fairness Campaign and of LSURGE, which stands for Louisville Showing Up for Racial Justice. So welcome, Carla. Oh, I'm excited to be here, Ruth. Thank you so much and for all that you bring to making our community better. Thank you, and I am really excited as well to be talking to you. I'd like, if possible, to devote this time to different aspects of building coalitions and empowering the vast majority of people who really want to make this world a better place. So I just want to start out by saying that coalition building is how America defeated the British in the Revolutionary War. Coalitions can transcend political affiliations, demographics. They're the best counterweight to wealth and power. And we, the people, we may not be able to outspend entrenched interests, but we, the people, when we're organized and acting in unison, we have the numbers on our side, and that can deliver a knockout punch to any small group of wealthy special interests. So... Let me start out by asking you, Carla, you've been working a long time on many human rights issues. Do you have any kind of ultimate goal or vision that propels you in this? Yeah, I appreciate this, um, this question, Ruth. Um, you know, I believe that the way this system is set up, the way what the history of this country has led us to, is a system that benefits the few at the top at the expense of the many. And the many are disproportionately impacted depending on whether you are black, indigenous, immigrant, a woman, an LGBTQ person, a person living with a disability. And those at the top, their power is ensured based on our divisions. And they work very hard to keep us divided. And what you said about coalition is absolutely true. If we were able to bring together all the various communities that are horribly impacted by a system that's killing the earth and oppressing the majority of its people, then we would be able to uh, have transformed society. Um, and as we would transform the society, it would transform this country's relationship with the rest of the world, which is based on exploitation and war and occupation. And so to me, uh, bringing people together is our power. You know, I often say so much of the power and the money 
and the guns and all of that is on the other side. So what do we have? We have the people power. But it's easier said than done because it is deeply baked in, for instance, for the majority of white people in this country to believe that if people of color, black people, indigenous people gain something, then we as white people will lose something. And those in charge work very hard to make sure that white people stay aligned with the system as it is. And if you look at every single issue that we care about, whether it is the environment, gender justice, reproductive rights, racism, economic justice, food justice, disability justice, you will find that the biggest common denominator in people being against that justice is whiteness. And it's because the country was based on creating that divide. You know, they decided blacks were going to be slaves and white servants were going to get a little power over the blacks. And they've used that ever since to keep us divided. But back to your coalition question, I feel like there's tremendous hope when we can grow our understanding that we can only get there together and that what oppresses someone else impacts my own possibility for life, literally, and being able to live a full life and get my needs met. And once we start understanding that in surge, we call it shared interest. Once we start understanding our shared interest in joining together, then uh, that's where we can become so powerful. I'm wondering how you start out because you are a coalition builder and an organizer. How do you start out building coalitions? Do you start with specific issues? Do you start with groups who happen to identify in a certain way, like Blacks? Yeah. How do you start the process? Yeah. Well, so this is the thing about coalitions. Coalitions are only as strong as their bases. So for instance, you can have somebody who is part of an organization and there's three people in it. That is not going to bring a lot to the coalition. It's going to bring three people. So I'm a believer in what I call base building organizing. And that means that one of our main goals in any organization we are part of has to be expanding who the we is. You know, it's mm -hmm. like, for instance, in showing up for racial justice, we are doing on the ground organizing to bring our task is more white people into an understanding that we have to support a multiracial democracy. And we do that uh, based on the issues that are impacting people. So for instance, in Eastern Kentucky, our organizing there is in poor white communities where people are struggling to keep a hold of the housing, being able to pay a rent um, or get their landlord to fix a place so that it's livable. So that is their struggle and then what we do is support people to see the connection with, you know, black people in Louisville losing their housing, um, you know, immigrant families trying to find housing. And so a coalition evolves out of the work that each organization does. And if each organization brings a bunch of people to the table, that is a powerful coalition. Uh, I see a lot of coalitions that are kind of org names only, 
And that, that does not equal power to be able to fight for the change. It's like we've got to say, what's our mission and how are we bringing people into that in an ever-expanding way? Like I'm in one coalition, for instance, a statewide organization called Commonwealth Alliance for Voter Engagement. And we're in the process with organizations across the state of helping people understand that uh, we need to bring more people in. As that happens, that statewide coalition is going to become stronger and stronger. And it has a commitment to working on economic issues and racial justice issues and climate issues. Um, we just were part of that coalition in the fight against Amendment 2. Amendment 2 being a bill that would have removed mention of any abortion rights through the Kentucky court system. And so that coalition is getting stronger because of, of adding up the sum of its parts, not only because it's a coalition. It's because it's a coalition. Not all the members have a base, but some of our organizations have a base. For instance, we have some unions in the organization who have a base. Um, and then some organizations are like, oh, well, we work with the media or we do research. That's great. But there have to be a certain number of organizations that are actually bringing a base of people to the table. I'm just wondering about going after that base and then widening it. I picked up some of your comments that I've heard in your talk that are very unifying and universal that many, mm -hmm. many people can agree with across all kinds of differences, yeah. such as rich people are running the country. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm just wondering if when you're working to build coalitions, you ever consider casting the widest net possible to include people that come from all political persuasions and walks of mm -hmm. life? Because as you have said about the intersectionality, they may not agree yeah. with all of your issues, but the ones that are really important such as preserving and strengthening our democracy so that we actually have a representative mm -hmm. government. That's something yeah. Democrats yeah. and Republicans can glom onto. Yeah. Um, yeah, Ruth, I feel like your question is such an important one for the particular political and social justice moment that we're in in this country. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure it is not shocking to your, to your listeners for me to say, that we are right now um, on a dangerous path towards authoritarianism. Yes. And the path to authoritarianism leads to fascism. I do not use that word uh, lightly, but if you look at and study the way that authoritarianism has grown, that fascism has arisen in other countries, it's not the exact same process but we have many of the road signs pointing in that direction. And one of them is that, you know, we had a president that was a far right demagogue and people voted for him. Mm -hmm. And he used race to convince the majority of white people to vote for him, despite all the insults to women, all the attacks on immigrant families, the racial attacks, et cetera, cutting the health care, keeping people from health care, and yet a majority of white people voted for him. And white people 
who are buying into this idea that the problems in our country are because of women or LGBT people or people of color, immigrants, mm-hmm. that, that messaging is leading people to there's a huge sector of our voting population who has said, yes, it is legitimate to use violence because those people, meaning the progressives, social justice, black women, et cetera, are cheating on the elections and we should be in charge. Mm-hmm. And so back to your question, because that is the terrain upon which we are functioning, it is critical to build the broadest coalition possible. And I call that the popular front. And it's not a term I've made up. It's, it's a historic term that when folks are up against uh, fascism, you have to develop a broad popular front. That includes, mm-hmm. you know, for those of us who know, there's huge problems with the Democratic Party and its neoliberal wing. It does include the Democratic Party. It does include those Republicans who actually believe in, you know, the shreds of democracy that we have left. It includes all those people who say, no, I'm opposed to fascism. Now, within that, we can't stop there. Within that popular front, we have to have a united front. And the united front has a higher level of unity. And that is unity that we are not going to sell out to racism, to attacks on reproductive justice, to the denial of food justice, to climate change, etc. It's a higher level. And then within the united front, there's even a higher level unity, which is, you know, we eventually have to get rid of prisons. It's not the way to function in our society. You know, we need direct action to stop global warming, all those things. But that broad is what you were talking about, that broad popular front. We have to take a deep breath and be open to working with folks who don't agree with us on everything. Absolutely. Otherwise, you're going to have a tiny crew of five people who exactly agree on everything with each other, and we will be mowed down. Exactly. I totally agree. (laughs) Exactly. That broad coalition Within that, we do have to, at that united front and at that group within, or some people call it left, some people call it liberation, we have to struggle around an agenda that makes sure we're not leaving anyone behind. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But at that broader level, we need to be in it with folks who we don't agree with on everything. Yes, I agree. Our democracy is deeply imperfect. The denial of voting rights, the way that it's used to keep the people in power, you know, Mm -hmm. who are in power, all of that, I absolutely agree. And under fascism, even those narrow spaces for us to fight for change will be eliminated. You know, Mm -hmm. part of my deep learning ever since I was a young person um, was in conversation with folks who have been part of the battles in the global south, where our country, the U.S., has supported dictatorships, torture, human rights abuses, coups, occupations, ever since I was born and before I was born. And so it was never lost on me that, you know, what fascism can look like. Mm -hmm. And it means, you know, a whole lot of us are going to jail and worse, especially leaders of color. So to me, it's like, 
I can have a healthy critique of what our democracy is lacking, but I also am going to fight to keep the shreds we have so that we can keep organizing for the change we need. Does yeah, that make sense? absolutely. And I've got several questions, if I can remember them, that relate to everything you've been saying. I, I read the social media app Nextdoor. Are you familiar with Nextdoor? Yeah, I was on it and I couldn't mm -hmm. stay on. But yes, I know, ahead. it's pretty wild. And we know that authoritarianism tries to divide and conquer through fear, through making us afraid of the other. Yeah. And what I yeah. read on Nextdoor so often talks about the thieves and the thugs who are everywhere, they're out to get us, they're trashing, yeah. they're stealing, they're shooting. And the conversation I find invariably descends into, well, we better get guns, we better keep them loaded, get tough on crime, lock them up and throw away the key, and get rid of the Democrats. That's what I read. Now, to me, yeah. that's really scary. And, Absolutely. And I wonder about if there's any, I don't know, way of uh, combating that drift in conversation over social media. Yeah, yeah. I mean, your your question is so important because it goes to um, the issue of who's controlling the narrative right now. Yes. And and like yeah. you're saying, we see it in the media. We see it coming out of our current mayor's mouth. We see it on the next door apps, et cetera. Underneath all of that is this tendency, especially not only, but especially on the part of white people who um, live a bit more comfortably economically, is a fear based on whether people are conscious of it or not of the other. And unfortunately, the other becomes immigrant people, undocumented people, black people, people with mental illness, et cetera. And what we miss is, wait a minute, why do we have communities that are at a point of struggle where people are not getting the care they need around mental health, are not getting the harm reduction we need to happen around issues of addiction? Why is it that our jail is full of poor people only. Now, the rich people aren't in jail. Nobody can tell me. The rich people aren't committing crimes and doing stuff. Mm -hmm. But what would it mean if we were a society where we were actually taking care of people's basic needs, where people had a roof over their heads, they had the mental health support that they needed, they had a job that they could feel good about, that is safe and that pays them a living wage, we would have a different community. Mm -hmm. And it's not the people that are marginalized who are at fault for us not having all those things. It's the people in charge. So if folks really want to, you know, look at who to blame when it comes to crime, vandalism and all that, it is the people at the top who have not divided the resources that we have in a way that gives people the supports they need to take care of their families so that they're not ending up down at the jail and possibly dying in that jail. So part of what's happening with the narrative is we're being told who to blame. And you you just nailed it on the head right there. If you go on a Nextdoor app, it's right there. And, you know, that gets backed up by the media, 
you know, I remember reading this, you know, what they call a white paper, a research paper. It was from the far right. This is about 35 years ago. And they uh, they were talking about how the media was controlled by liberals and they had a strategic plan to change that. And it included entering people in the journalism schools, majoring in that in college, and then having a whole network to support people's entry level into the media, eventually to have their own networks. All of that has come to pass, you know, in the decades since. And I often see that the other side is so much more strategic than we are. And it shows up right now, sadly, in who's winning. And it's not us. You know, often on our side, we end up accepting staying small and staying a few and only talking to the people that we already agree with. And that is not going to build us what is needed to make the changes we want. And it is absolutely not going to build us what we need in the fight against authoritarianism. Yeah. And also, I might add that the states in this country, including Kentucky, who just have high rates of incarceration, that has not solved yes. their problem. They have the higher instances of crime and homicides as well. Kentucky, I believe, is sixth in the country for incarceration. And yet yes. we still have a very high level of homicides and crimes. So incarceration doesn't work. <laughs> right. No, absolutely, Ruth. We use our jails, our ICE detention centers, and our prisons to manage poverty and to manage racism. Right. When people are impacted, when we're not meeting people's needs, we shred the safety net uh, that people have with their families in their communities we're not supporting people around their needs. And then what do we do when we have the results of that is we put people in jail and in prison and in ICE detention centers. And even that diabolical way of managing poverty is totally failing. And what I think back to your question of the talking points with people who are afraid is we've got to help people see that if they're not feeling safe, then let's look at what we're doing that is failing instead of asking for more of it. Mm -hmm. Because right now where people go is more police. Well, one of the realities of policing is that when you heighten policing and have more police in a neighborhood, for instance, where uh, drugs are being sold, the stakes around silence, around betrayal, around who's in whose group are uh, rise. Mm -hmm. And it means that people are more likely to use guns and more likely to kill in order to maintain what they're doing around drugs. Portugal is an incredible example. They had a horrendous situation around drugs. Uh, both soft and harder drugs, and they were illegal, just like here, and their prisons were filling up, and the folks from both sides, as you say, got together politically in Portugal, and they said, what we are doing is not working, and it's only escalating. They uh, moved to um, legalize all drugs, address the situation as a medical problem rather than a criminal problem. Their crime 
fell incredibly and they started investing what they were saving from having to lock people up and do the level of policing they were doing in programs to help people around drug addiction, in affordable housing, in jobs programs, etc. Mm-hmm. It's an incredible example that isn't shared very much because it would mean a radical reorientation to everything we're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, it always drives me up the wall when we talk about the police stop crime. Police get to a crime after it's already happened. They are not stopping crime. They Mm -hmm. arrive there after Mm -hmm. the crime or they're after the people who committed, supposedly committed a crime. It is not a deterrent. We're seeing the results of this in in just what you were naming around the struggles with with crime statistics. And the other reality is the way that we treat people in jails and detention centers and the barriers that we put up to their re-entry into society, whether that is being able to vote or to get housing or to get jobs, only guarantees that they have to figure out some other way to survive and will likely end up back inside. And all we have to do is look back on prohibition (laughs) with all of the crime and the gangs that we had back then, the mafia, and somehow Mm. we didn't learn our lesson. I love it. I love it, Ruth, that you're bringing that example and I'm going to borrow it from you because it's so true. It's like all those shootouts and everything. It was because folks were dealing liquor that was illegal and the stakes were very high. And so there's a lot more death and violence around it. But, you know, that's a real narrative shift and paradigm shift to think about things differently. You know, a lot of the folks who are afraid are people in our own families, people in our own neighborhoods, people in our own faith spaces. And if we started to have those dialogues, not from a place of, oh, you're afraid? Well, you must be a racist. Mm -hmm. Not from that place. But, you know, the way that we talk to people in Surge is, and here in Louisville, Surge, we knock doors to have conversations with people. And we don't start the conversation by saying, hi, did you know you have white privilege? It's like, where is that going to get me with somebody who's holding down two jobs, Mm -hmm. can't pay for the daycare, is trying to get their son out of jail, and they're like, where's my white privilege? Yes, every white person has so-called white privilege, but that is not an organizing strategy. We need to approach people from a place of saying, What's going on with your family? What are you worried about right now? Mm -hmm. And then listen to people and talk about it. And when folks get to that point of saying, yeah, but those immigrants, you know, they're getting everything. We don't say, well, you're a racist. We say, so do you know any immigrants, people who are getting everything? In fact, three doors down, I just talked to, you know, the family over there, the Gonzalez family. Well, yeah, yeah, I know them. You know, are they, are they the people you're talking about? Well, no, I know they struggle too, but, and it's like, how do we help, especially white folks, because we're the barrier, how do we help white folks get to a place of being, oh my gosh, if we join together with people of color, we can win single payer, we can uh, win more uh, regulation around climate justice, we can win more demands around uh, ending food deserts. We can gender justice on and on. If we have a broad multiracial front, mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. There is so much that's possible, but we need a whole bunch more white people to join it. You are listening to Election Connection on WFMP 106.5 FM with me, your host, Ruth Newman. And today we are here with Carla Wallace, local activist, organizer, and co-founder of the Fairness Campaign, as well as L Surge, which is Louisville showing up for racial justice. And we are getting into the nuts and the bolts of how to form coalitions across a wide swath of people from various backgrounds and perspectives. So let's continue the conversation with Carla Wallace. I've heard some of your talks, and you you talk about forming intimate relationships with people and listening to people where they're at. And one of your statements that I glommed onto was, we must never allow any one of us or group of people to be treated as expendable. That was one of your closing remarks. It got an immediate applause. And yet, being treated as expendable crosses all kinds of lines. You know, we have it on on the job, in the justice system, in the classroom, in the home, on the Mm -hmm. farm, and (laughs) everywhere in politics, people being treated as expendable. And I would even wager that a a large majority of the people who voted for Trump, they voted for him because they themselves feel like they've been passed up and treated as expendable. And plus, it bridges that urban-rural divide. You know, these are the things that bring us, like you mentioned, Gonzalez down the street, when we can identify with people who look different from us or different culture, whatever, through Mm -hmm. these kind of um, common grounds? Is it something that is part of your organizing, finding these common grounds? Absolutely, Ruth. No, this is a very important question. So we come at the work from a place, as I mentioned, of shared interest. And one of the realities, and this is sad, and it is part of what has turned Kentucky. Kentucky used to be a blue state. I mean, politically blue. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now it's politically, overwhelmingly red state. And part of the reality is that the Democratic Party has failed to stand with poor people in this state. And I'm talking about white, working class, and poor people. When Our side abandons poor and working class people, and especially as you named rural white working class people, and blames them, people who are also struggling for health care, housing, being treated horrible by the police, are filling up our jails where each jail gets paid per head and for each day and how many people they can lock up. When we discount poor and working class rural white people, Those folks are left to be told whatever they get told by the other side. And I'm so sick and tired of our side saying, yeah, but you can't bring up racial justice with working class white people. And I say, well, you can't bring up race with working class white people. The other side does. The other side does. They're telling them it's because of immigrants. It's because of black people instead of telling them it's the people at the top which people actually realize, you know, when we go door to door, Ruth, even if somebody initially says, well, you know, those black people or, well, you know, those homeless people, once we get in the conversation 
about who's getting rich while we're divided, people understand that they're being screwed by the people at the top. But instead, if we're not having those conversations with folks, the other side is. Mm -hmm. And then I wonder whose fault it is that we haven't built a democratic Kentucky. And we've got to go back to the work of talking with, not talking at, but talking with and listening to poor and working class rural white people, communities of color, immigrant communities, in a way where their voices are centered, where their stories are centered, and where we're building with them, not because we're trying to do some kind of artificial diversity act, but because we really deeply believe that together we can make the change. You know, and one of the reality about a lot of rural white people is a lot of rural white people are also struggling economically. And if we can build, you know, a broad coalition of black, white, brown, and then within that women, tea and labor and, and uh, environmental folk and all of that kind of thing, that I believe it's the trajectory towards a blue Kentucky. And then we have to fight for it can't just be light blue. We need deep blue, which means that we are putting people's economic needs and people's reproductive needs and people's civil rights needs front and center and making a priority of that. You know, voters are not stupid. People are not stupid. I get so sick and tired of hearing the anti-rural stuff where the urban areas blame the rural people. And I want to say, huh. Okay, so what organization do you know is out there giving rural people a chance to be on our side? Mm -hmm. You know, one of our Eastern Kentucky um, organizers, well, she's actually our Kentucky organizer, Beth Howard in Eastern Kentucky, and she talks about her father having been a coal miner. And she said, you know, nobody ever knocked on his door to ask him to join the union or ask him to join the efforts for change and what might have happened if they had. And she's now bound and determined to knock on as many doors as she can, because if we do not invite people into this work, if we do not provide a counter to the narrative on the other side and from those in power that just want to keep things the way it is, um, then we will not succeed. I don't care how loud we scream. If we don't build our numbers, mm -hmm. we are not going to make the change that we need. Yeah, I, I agree. And and sometimes I, I think liberals are very good at shooting ourselves in the foot. <laughs> yeah. one, one example that I read about year, a few years ago was right after the Trump election, and they had that big, yeah. big women's march in Washington. There was a group of uh, millennials, young women, who wanted to join the march because they also felt that it, it was a degradation of women, the Trump presidency, that is. And mm -hmm. they wanted to join the march, and they were kept out by the leaders of that march. And the reason is, is that their group was, was anti-abortion. And the leaders didn't uh, want to have an anti-abortion group on that march. Yeah. And then yeah. I looked at their website, and lo and behold, the way their website characterized that march was they wouldn't let us in because really 
it was just a pro-abortion march. That's what it was, a pro, and it wasn't, but that was how they interpreted mm. it. And, you know, to me, that would have been an opportunity for some intersectionality that was uh, dropped yeah. by the liberals. Yeah, yeah it's, it's really hard because I think, you know, there are times where, I mean, we were involved, very involved. In, in fact, we had the largest ground game voter contact program in the state around No on 2. Amendment 2 being a bill that would have removed mention of any abortion rights through the Kentucky court system. And, you know, the abortion issue touches on so many issues, racial justice, economic justice, and we absolutely need to support women's reproductive justice. And in this popular front against fascism, we are going to be with folks where we don't agree on everything. And it is a tremendous tension, Ruth, as you've just named, to figure out how do we have a justice program that includes people and that is very broad. And I think, you know, our gatherings call for different levels of unity. But at some level, we mm -hmm. have to have the really, really broad unity. And, you know, mm -hmm. it's hard for me, too. It's mm -hmm. like, oh, we're going to be in there with this group. They're not consolidated around that. You know, and then it's like, okay, but that's that's the journey. It's like, I tell you one thing, if we're all in that broad popular front together, there's going to be a lot of shifts, I think, in the right direction because we're even in the same space together. Yeah, and we get to work on those shifts. I mean, when we were calling people on the No on Two and the Kentucky Access, wonderful broad coalition leading that work, and Surge had a particular part of that work, and the coalition had made the decision, rightly so, to not pretend that this wasn't about abortion, but to talk about it openly. And we wondered, like, oh, how's this going to be with our calls? We were calling voters. And our calls were calls where we asked people for their experience. Have you or anyone ever known anyone who struggled with a decision about whether to have an abortion or not? And we listened to people. And we brought the issue down to the ground of, like, what happens if it's your sister? You know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. We were able to have an over 20% conversion rate. And that is, if anyone knows electoral politics, that is a huge conversion rate. You're happy with a 4%, but we were getting a 20%. And to me, it's number one, because we were actually talking to people. And we believed Ann Braden has this great quote, a uh, longtime white civil rights Southern organizer, Ann Braden, that she says, we have to stop believing we're the only ones. And I find often in the progressive movement and among liberals, that we count out people before we've even talked to them. Mm -hmm. And it's a very smug, patronizing, and ultimately elitist decision to do so. And it means we will lose. Mm -hmm. um, we have to stop putting people in the... Sometimes we're knocking doors, Ruth, in Louisville's South End is largely where we are. And I'll see a Confederate flag, you know, hanging there. And I don't say, oh, I'm not going to that door. I'm going to still go to that door and I'm going to be curious and I'm going to see what happens. 
Very now, I'm knocking and saying, have you ever had a family member, you ever struggled with somebody in jail and you couldn't, they couldn't get out because of cash bail? Well, yeah, that happened to my uncle two years ago. We had to go to the church to get the money together. That's just wrong. And then we go into conversation about cash bail and why it's unfair and who benefits from it and all that. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying I leave that door and that person will take that flag down, but that person has just had a conversation with somebody who said, hi, I'm with Louisville showing up for racial justice. And it might be the first seed that's planted um, on that person's journey. We don't start with the hardcore far right people. Of course not. There are so many people who could go either way. And that's who we have to start with, the people who could go either way. But those are people beyond us that are not coming to our meetings. And now I mean all our orgs who we're not talking to yet. And that has to be core to the work. Right. And and it's really all about forming relationships and not coming to the door with the idea that I'm going to show that you're wrong and I'm right. I'm going to prove, you know, and that's the case with so many of us. It's our knee jerk is that we want we want to convert people to our way of thinking. And that shouldn't be the first impulse. You're absolutely right, Ruth. And I love the way you just put it. It's like we want to be right. Mm -hmm. And we're there for the fight. Mm -hmm. And it's like, if we instead say, oh, the point is to be curious, to listen, and to see what's possible here, Mm -hmm. not only might something helpful actually happen, but you quote, leave the door open, so to speak, for the next conversation that happens with that same person, when we go back, right. it's like, I believe, I believe that it's much like planting a garden is, you know, you have to till the soil, you have to plant the seeds, and then you have to water them and you have to weed. And I'm not sure where in that journey I am. Am I the tiller? Am I the seed planter? Am I the harvester? <laughs> when I go to a door, I might be at any stage of that process, but each one of those stages is important. And if I'm earlier in the process, I want to leave the door open and the possibility for the person who comes behind me to be another part of this person's journey. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. And so much of the time, I think it's a matter of reframing, which I think the the right wing is so much better at reframing than the left. (laughs) You know, like you get the example of abortion, you know, Mm -hmm. instead of talking about are you for or against abortion, you could reframe it to be how do we reduce the number of unwanted pregnancies? Yeah, and talking to people about their personal experiences. Right. Because when we stay in theoretical kind of stuff, it doesn't connect with people. But when I say to somebody, have you ever known anyone who struggled about a pregnancy before? And then I listen to what Mm -hmm. they say, Mm -hmm. you know, and do you think that this person should have been forced to carry that pregnancy if they weren't ready for that, you know, and it doesn't work with everybody, but it gets a lot of people to suddenly think about their own situation and the people they love. And it's much more effective than talking theory with folks. It's like we've got to get down in it with their own lived experience. 
Now, I've chosen a few phrases, and I don't know what your opinion of them is, and I'm not sure what my opinion of them is either. But, you know, there are certain phrases that the liberals or the conservatives and everyone in between use that are trigger phrases. They trigger kind of defensive or irritated attitudes, you know, like defund the police or government regulation, which they interpret as being big brother and just limitless red tape, keeping businesses from flourishing. So... There are other ways of talking about things like that, you know, with the police talking about coordinating among different public health and safety workers, including the police, or Mm -hmm. with the regulation just keeping us at a high standard of environmental and and human health protection, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, um, minimum wage versus living. You mentioned living wage at the very beginning. Just ways of... uh, characterizing things. A lot is being said of liberals that they really are socialistic or communistic. They want to get rid of capitalism. They are against capitalism. But I just wonder if instead it was termed as monopoly capitalism, which it really is. We are rushing headlong into monopoly capitalism. With this. Well there. And that kills yeah. the free market competition. Yeah, just to be transparent, I'm sure people, your audience knows this uh-huh. about me. I do not believe that we can solve the problems that we're facing under this current economic system mm-hmm. because this economic system is actually built to do everything that is happening right now, to destroy the earth, to maximize profit for those at the top, to not care whether people have housing or not, to use race to exploit and commit violence against communities of color and black people. What we have is an economic system, which is called capitalism. It's not possible to um, eradicate racism, exploitation, anything under this current economic system. It was built to do all the things that it is doing. It is functioning as it is meant to function. Now, does that mean that when I'm door knocking, I say, hi, I'm here to get rid of capitalism? No. Any good organizer knows that you talk about the issues at a place that meets people where they're at. And so you don't start a conversation with somebody who's very new to understanding, oh, there's some problems with the police, which, yes, and now sign on the dotted line that you agree to defund them. I'm an abolitionist, and I believe that we need to get rid of prisons and policing because it's not the way to solve for the problems that we have. I also believe that we have to figure out smart strategies so that we can move those issues in a way that meets people where they're at, listens to them, and talks about the issues in a way that people are ready for. You know, that's, uh-huh. that's what organizing is about. It's, it's meeting people where they're at and inviting them onto a journey. That said, I've worked with thousands of people where when I first met them, They were like, yeah, I just think maybe if we fix this little thing, tweak this little thing in the system, then everything will be good. And now they're like, you know, smash capitalism. 
So people can be on that journey, you know, and I do want people to be on that journey, but we can't have it be three or four of us, you know, if we start out with, you can only join me if you agree to all of this, then I couldn't call myself an organizer. I only can call myself an organizer because I'm willing to build a broader and broader base and have people get on this journey about what the issues are and how we can build power to change it. And that often means I'm not starting with the language that I believe in because I want to meet people where they're at, you know, and some of those people will eventually be hungry for that other language and that learning and they get to, they get to move along that path. And we will be stronger when we have more people that understand why defund the police. I mean, the other thing that's a reality, Ruth, is that social change is not a linear process. For instance, um, during the AIDS crisis, when the government was literally letting people die because they said, well, they're homosexual and they're bad and deviant, so we don't care. And so an organization started out, a more radical organization came up that was demanding that the government fund care for people with AIDS. And and people said, oh, well, you know, that that group is so radical. But the existence of that group and their getting arrested and all of that helped push the conversation further over to where it needed to be. Mm -hmm. And I believe that about the movement for abolition and to defund the police, that there has to be a conversation where that is being pushed because it does open up. You know, people talk about, well, maybe we should put more money into alternatives here. It's happening here in Louisville alternatives to 911, that there are certain calls that happen where we need to have a social worker go instead of the police. There is no way that that conversation would be happening or those programs would be developing without the Black-led mm-hmm. uprising in response to the murder of Breonna Taylor. That said, we're still not at the point where we've built the base we need to win on defund the police or abolition. And a lot of building the base we need is going to be this slow organizing work where we're meeting people where they're at and we're saying, can you start with, let's reform this. Those conversations are going to have to be part of the organizing in order to build the base that we need. Does that make sense? Absolutely makes sense to me. And, And on that subject, I have a pet peeve. What has occurred to me over many, many years is that if you're in a demonstration, demonstrating for a particular issue, but the people who show up come with signs touting all sorts of other issues, even though those issues can be interconnected. But in my opinion, in any case, that waters down the whole point of that demonstration. Plus, it alienates people who would agree with all the principles of that issue but not agree with the other issues that there are signs being held up about. And it alienates Mm -hmm. a lot of people to see all these other issues that are going along with this one issue that people were all gathered there for. Well, you know, one of the realities is that's just going to happen. And then the other reality is that when we organize really broadly and we have a lot of people there, and you organize well, so 
so that there's a clarity about the message, it doesn't matter. It only ends up mattering if folks have small groups marching along, rallies where, this is my pet peeve, people spend all their time planning a great program and very little time on the outreach needed to get people beyond the already converted to the rally. Mm-hmm. I see it mm-hmm. over and over again. The time is all sucked into the program, mm-hmm. and then you don't have the people there to even listen to it. And mm-hmm. so people are going to come with what is on their heart and mind about their issues. And sometimes it can be a good thing because somebody shows up and says, I mean, for instance, reproductive justice and issues for women in prison are hugely connected. So somebody might bring something that says, you know, defend abortion, you know, end incarceration or something. And people see that and they're like, whoa, what do those have to do with? I wonder. Mm -hmm. And they start learning about it. But, you know, my main answer is just that's going to happen. And those folks are not the enemy. You know, let's Uh stay focused on the people in power who aren't going to listen to us if we don't have enough people showing up, really. Mm -hmm. And when we have more people showing up, then, you know, the various messages are just kind of in the stream of things. And it becomes very clear what the main rally is about. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I've always said to myself, oh, just means we got to bring more people. You know, when I made that statement, I was thinking about people watching it over the news. Yeah. And just turning it off if they see a sign that they don't agree with and discounting the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it took us 15 years to win the Fairness Amendment. I, I'm a co-founder of the Fairness Campaign as well. Mm-hmm. And when we started it, people said, you are never going to win protections based on, at that time, sexual orientation. Later, of course, we fought and won gender identity, too. But people said, you are never going to win that. And you all, if you all talk about this, and these are the Democrats telling us, this, mm-hmm. you're just going to divide people. We're going to lose our elections. And we were like, If the conversation doesn't start, it's never going to end up getting to where we need it to get to. It took us 15 years to win the Fairness Amendment. But because we did it from an organizing place and developed a huge broad base, we also were able to join that power that we had built with the Black community to win a civilian police review board and with labor to win living wages for city workers. If people had said, oh no, this is too radical, you can't do this. If we hadn't started somewhere, we would have never been able to build to where we get to. Mm -hmm. So it's true. Some people are gonna be watching us and turning us off. But this is the thing, Ruth, if they also have somebody who the week before knocked their door and listened to them and told them what this is about, then when they're a husband who says, oh, those are those radicals marching down there. That woman's going to say, if it's a woman, she's going to say, well, actually, somebody came and talked to me last week, and and here's what the rally is about, and here's what they're trying to do. Mm -hmm. The problem is we have rallies that are unconnected to base building organizing. It happens over and over again. People think organizing is doing events is doing rallies, is doing picket lines, is doing educational programs. It's like, no, organizing is going beyond ourselves to talk to directly impacted people, to lift up their stories, support their leadership so they can be part of the change we need. Then we're going to be actually talking to the people who might have otherwise gotten turned off because all they saw was a bunch of people downtown who have never asked them 
how they're feeling or what they're thinking. So to me, the problem is a disconnect between our tactics and a, a weak strategy that will keep us small. Right. If we don't change it. Yeah, and that to me at least gets into the whole notion of training, training people mm. to be listeners, mm-hmm. to be curious and inclusive yes. and not just yes. want to win the argument, you know, because <laughs> that's the majority of people, that's Absolutely. what they want to do. Yes, and Ruth, it's very exciting. Serge is having a training. We oh, called good. back uh-huh. the people that we talked to during the election. And they're being invited on a call. It's a one-hour call. The date is going to be sometime, I think, February, early March. And it's about the nuts and bolts of how do you engage in a way that actually builds us people power. And so, you know, I will, once I get that final information, I'll definitely send it to you because it would be great to get it out. And is there a website or anywhere they can go and find out this information? You know, it's not on the website yet, but people Uh can get information about Surge's work at surge.org, or they can go on the Louisville Surge. We have a website and a Facebook. So Surge, without the L, it's just S-U-R-J dot O-R-G? Yes, S-U-R-J dot O-R-G is what I call Big Surge. That's National Surge, and there's Uh a lot of uh, resources on there. And if any of your listeners are in different cities, it tells them whether there's a chapter in their area. And then Louisville chapter, LouisvilleSurge.org is the um, is the local chapter of Surge, which, uh, you know, is doing base building organizing uh, mm-hmm. here in Louisville, currently around cash bail. But we've worked on other issues around education, environmental justice, uh, police, et cetera. Very good. Well, we've run out of time. So Those are great questions, well, thank Ruth. You, oh, my God. I am yeah, so absolutely. impressed with all of your work and all of your wisdom. You know, it only comes from engaging with others, and mm-hmm. this has been really uh, an awesome support and learning for me, too, just having the conversation with you. So. Well, thank you. And please do email me when you find out. Fabulous. Thank you for your good work, Ruth. Well, thank you, Carla. <laughs> That was Carla Wallace, local activist and organizer, who is also co-founder of the Fairness Campaign and L Surge, which is Louisville showing up for racial justice. And you can find L Surge online at louisvillesurj.org. You can also find an outlet for local voices, issues, and community building events here on Community Radio, WFMP 106.5 FM, as well as live streaming at www.forwardradio.org. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of Election Girl.